You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 627 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland. It's Sunday evening, and joining me for yet another run is the great Jeff Siegel. What's up, man? I'm doing well. Uh, it's Sunday, and uh, my fantasy football team lost, but who cares? Because we're talking about basketball, so it's, uh, it's a <laughs> better. This is the best part of the day. Yes, uh, certainly something like that. Um, I should apologize. I-, I promoted the podcast recording, and the plan was to have you on the podcast Thursday evening. I had a family issue come up, and uh, all is relatively well now, but there was uh, it was not great for me this weekend. I had to travel unexpectedly and haphazardly and all that, so my apologies on the false advertising, but Jeff is uh, a good sport and joined me three days late for this podcast, so uh, that's the one record-keeping item of the day. Also... The Hawks didn't make, I guess, minor news this week. Um, they traded, well, actually, College Park traded for Taj McCall um, in front of the program from Summer League, and uh, the Hawks then ex- they gave him an Exhibit 10 contract. Not a big deal in terms of uh, impact. I don't think Taj is going to make this team, but he's someone I really enjoyed at Summer League. I enjoyed talking to at Summer League, was talking about him a lot. Um, Jeff's friend and mine, Graham, Graham Chappell, wrote a ton about Taj McCall at PeacherGroups.com after Summer League, um, and we'll probably talk about him for a few minutes on the shooting guard preview later on. But um, any thoughts on that, Jeff, uh, while, while we're here? And then we'll come back to that if you'd like to. But it's kind of Yeah, a- I mean, he played well in Summer League, was maybe the one of the lone bright spots at Summer League, given how bad that team was and how little the, the top guys played. You know, since Omari Spellman was traded halfway through, the other rookies from 2018 obviously didn't play. You know, DeAndre Hunter played a little bit, but then was out. Reddish didn't play at all. So, like, there was not a whole lot of real intrigue with the Hawks summer league team, but McCall played real well, Uh, you know, more of a defender, more of a like DeAndre Bembry type of player. So it'd be weird to keep both of those guys when there's already fit questions about Bembry and how much he's going to play. So it would be odd to me if they were to keep McCall long-term, but you know, I think it's uh, if they give him $50,000 to be an exhibit 10 guy, I think that's, that's money well earned by, uh, by him in summer league. Yeah. And uh, you know, a pretty direct path to, Already, well, he was already on the, uh, the on the G League roster based on the uh, trade that happened, uh, which doesn't really matter. But it looks like he's going to be around in College Park, and that's a good thing for those of us who might be around that team occasionally. Uh, he's he's a fun guy to talk to and watch. He plays hard and all that fun stuff. We'll come back to that um, at a later date, albeit briefly. And uh, the other, I guess, quote unquote, news that Vince Carter finally signed his contract uh, that is not really any, of any impact whatsoever. Vince was always going to be on this team, and uh, um, the Hawks. I guess word broke of that deal, at least I heard about it, and it got reported on August 5th, and he didn't sign the contract until mid-September, which is uh, not the usual, but considering Mitz was signing for the minimum, it wasn't a huge surprise that he waited that long, and uh, actually from what I heard, Vince just wasn't around to take his physical, <laughs> so uh, not, not a lot of urgency there, so that, that, was, that kind of explains the delay. I guess there could have been some salary cap stuff. Um, real quickly, Jeff, would there have been any reason that the Hawks might, might have wanted to hold off on signing Vince because it was a minimum contract. Maybe that just to keep the flexibility open. Yeah, I mean, they're the only team in the league with cap space right now. And so now that Vince is officially signed, they've got $5.3 million, But before that, they would have had $1.6 more uh, to, to have about $7 million in cap space. 
if they had wanted to make a trade in the last six weeks that involved that $7 million, that entire $7 million in cap space, they could have done it. Maybe they had some exploratory conversations. I haven't heard anything specific about that. A lot of the NBA has been pretty much on vacation for the last six weeks or so. I mean, a lot of, of front office executives use August as their uh, time to get away a little bit from the from the, the day-to-day grind of the NBA. It's really the one month a year that they can get away. So I think that there was probably not a whole lot of urgency from the Hawks' point of view to get him in and get that signed just so that they had that extra bit of flexibility. If they had used all of that cap space, they still could have signed him over the cap because it's a minimum contract. So it didn't make a difference there. Obviously, they they didn't find a trade or they didn't even really want to find a trade. They just signed Vince as soon as he showed up in Atlanta. And uh, so they they do, they, they'll carry about $5.3 million going into the uh, – into the season, and they've got the room exception on top of that. They can't add that together, but they can use that afterward if they want to. Uh, if there's a buyout guy who really wants to play in Atlanta for some reason, which is odd because they're probably not going to be very competitive, but if they <laughs> did, then they would have extra money on top of what other buyout teams can can provide. So, you know, we'll see. It's it's more about just the uh, the flexibility in a trade to use that 5.3 million, but it's it's a very small thing that they could have done if they. Uh, had wanted to delay Vince even further, but I think they uh, they realized that that trade probably isn't even out there for them at this point. Yep, uh, that's a good synopsis of that. And uh, we obviously talked about Vince on our last podcast. If you missed it, by the way, uh, Jeff and I have already talked about the centers, and then we had a massive two-part power forward discussion um, last week. And also, I was joined by Tyler Jones last week as well for a fun conversation. It's always fun to have Tyler on the podcast. So um, plenty of content, and go back and subscribe and listen and catch up on all of that. But today is going to be small forward driven. We're going to talk about four guys primarily on this podcast, one of which, Charlie Brown, is a two-way contract. And then uh, Chandler Parsons, who's kind of a hybrid forward. I almost want to listen to him as a power forward, but because we had so much of a discussion on the power forward podcast, it was better to spread that out. And he, he can't play the three. And then the headliners later on, Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter. Um, so just that sort of such a stage of what we're going to talk about today. Let's start with Charlie Brown real quickly. Um, obviously a two-way contract guy, a little bit less high profile with the Hawks. Sprang into action. They signed him pretty much immediately after the draft. Uh, that the war broke that night of that deal, and uh, he was signed on July 1st. Basically, that, that deal was announced um, and then played in Summer League. I kind of like Charlie Brown as a sort of a flyer, and he, he fits the archetype of what the Hawks have been doing with these kind of contracts in the Travis Schlenk era, t- taking some flyers on you know small forward type players who can maybe shoot or maybe be athletic or do something well because you know three and D forwards are super valuable. Right now, the D on Charlie Brown is non-existent. He's not a good defender right now at all. But he does have length and the shooting acumen, which is why they brought him in. And uh, in summer league, you know, he had some moments, but they seem to like him. And talking to the coaching staff, just set the table a little bit on that. I think the coaching staff likes Charlie Brown. We sees something in him, and uh, you know, as much as you need to be able to defend there, the shooting part is probably the hardest part, and he already has that, which is nice. Yeah, I mean, six seven and can shoot like that's going to be that's that's a very very good path to having some sort of NBA career, and that's where Charlie Brown is. If he can defend even a lick, he's you know he he can become a much better uh, you know much better player. We'll see. You know I don't have high expectations based on what we've seen at summer league, but of course that was summer league. You know who knows what it's going to look like when he's actually in the uh, the Hawks system day in and day out for at least the first few weeks of the season, and then when the G League season starts, you know we'll see how they how they manage his uh, his time up and down between uh, Atlanta and College Park. Yeah, he's going to need um, an injury or two to play actual minutes in Atlanta this year, I, I would imagine. Probably because you know he's, he's on a two-way, so that, that's a limited d- a number of days already. 
But then you throw in the fact that there are just so many wing options. Honestly, Brown is probably more of a two than a three at this moment because he's so slight and skinny. If you watched him at all in summer league or in college, you would know that. He's not a very physical player right now. Um, you know, I'm listing him as a three here because ideally you'd probably want him to, want him to play there and because we kind of need this need, need to talk about somebody else on this podcast. But, you know, he's definitely a two-three wing, and there's just so many bodies. We'll talk about, you know, obviously. Reddish and Hunter on this podcast, they throw in Kevin Herter and Alan Crabb and DeAndre Bembry and all these names. I, I just can't imagine Brown's going to be playing a whole lot, whereas Brandon Goodwin, who we'll talk about on the Point Guard podcast, um, actually has a path to potentially playing a little bit this season if things were going to work out well. Brown doesn't really have that barring injury, so most of the time will be spent in College Park. Again, I kind of like Charlie Brown as a flyer. I was totally fine with, with that two-way contract because, as we just both said, 6-7 can shoot. It's a good, a good place to start, but he's a long way away. He's going to have to get more physical, stronger, and definitely going to learn how to play defense because um, it was rough at the college level for him, and the physicality is just not really there for Brown. But listen, he shot 37% on real volume from three uh, and two years at college, and um, that's a good place to start with Charlie Brown. Um, anything else that you want to add on him before we get to Chandler Parsons? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I think the comparison with Brandon Goodwin as just the two two-way guys, I think Goodwin's got a better shot at being both being good at the NBA level, like being an actual like NBA caliber player and actually having, you know, a real chance to play this year on the Hawks. It seems to sort of be in the same uh path that the it's the same sort of thing that the the Hawks like to do over these last few years they always like to have that two-way point guard with you know whether it was Josh Majette the first year uh Jalen Adams last year and then uh Brandon Goodwin this year those guys get to play a little bit more than usually the the wing two-way guys or the forward two-way guys that they usually bring in you know like Tyler Cavanaugh was it it was in there for the first year uh and, and now Charlie Brown like I just I don't know that they they view that second one as more of a flyer, and then the first the first spot as more of a this will actually help us and on the on the point guard line. So I think you know I think Goodwin's got a better chance to play minutes this year. He's got a better chance to, I, I mean I like him better as just sort of an overall prospect as well. So I think he's got a better chance of being an actual NBA player both in Atlanta and post Atlanta. And so uh, you know I'm not I don't expect very much out of Charlie Brown. I think it'll be interesting to see what he can do at the at the G League level, but I certainly don't think that he's going to play more than you know maybe a hundred couple hundred minutes at the uh, at the NBA level. Yep, I would uh, think about Charlie Brown if you're a Hawks fan. You know, it's not it's not ideally the same. I guess it's not identically the same because of the situation with the contracts. But he's just the latest in the line of the Antonius Cleveland, Jalen Morris, Damian Lee. Um, you know, the flyer type of just bring in a, bring in a guy out that's wing size and see what's going to happen. Uh, except for the fact that Brown, I do kind of like, you know, probably more than some of those guys, definitely more than Jalen Morris, for instance. But um, the path to playing time just isn't there right now unless you get a bunch of injuries. So we'll come back to him later if we uh, need to, if he starts playing more. And again, I, I do kind of like Charlie Brown, but uh, I'm not expecting a huge role from him this season. Um, all right, let's go to Chandler Parsons. Uh, I, I said before, real quickly, I think I probably would. I think I probably would have had him on the power forward podcast. Um, but he can play the three. Uh, he's, um, I guess, kind of like Vince Carter in that way. You know, Vince is, I would say, definitely more of a four. Um, but those guys can both kind of play both spots and. You will definitely. I actually heard from some people that were surprised that we were talking about Jabari Parker as a, as a as only a power forward. Um, I am firmly in the Jabari Parker as a power forward camp, um, but I guess he could play small forward. Uh, before we get to Parsons, I actually want to ask you this question, and I, I'll just go ahead and do it now. Um, we talk. We're talking about four guys on this podcast that could play small forward. How many other guys on this team could play small forward? during some part of some game this year. There are some guys who are very obvious, like DeAndre Bembry, for instance, is 
almost certainly going to, going to play some small forward. How many other guys that, that are not on this podcast that we're about to talk about will play small forward minutes this year at some point? Uh, Bembry's the most obvious one. Yes. I think Kevin Herter, if they wanted to go, you know, a little bit smaller. Like, I don't know if they would necessarily want to do well, like a here's my, thing on, here's my thing on Herter. If they had a real backup point guard, I would think Herter might play the small forward spot. But right now, the only way Herter's playing small forward is if he's playing with Alan Crabb and you're saying Herter's a small forward in that, in that, in that alignment because they're both they're both shooting guards. But because they're not going to, I guess I guess if they wanted to play Brandon Goodwin and Trey Young together, um, that's a long way away, I think. But that'd be the only way I think Herter... Is going to be like a primary small four because if you put if you put him and Crab on the court together, I guess Herder might be the small four, but it's kind of nominal. They're both just shooting guards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's the whole like wing forward thing is is super weird, especially with the way that that the modern game is sort of going. That if you're not a point guard and you're not a center, you're just sort of out there and like you're just a basketball player, and it doesn't totally matter whether you're the two, the three, or the four. Like it matters in in certain alignments, but just sort of it from an overall. You know, ten, you know, ten thousand foot view. I don't think it matters that much to uh, to really differentiate too much between those two. You know, I think Herter is is out there if they're going to do like maybe Trey Young, Alan Crabb, Kevin Herter lineups like we were just talking about. Um, you know, Vince might play some three if they absolutely need him to to do so. I think he played a very small amount of three last year. Jabari could, but not like well. It would not uh, surprise me at all. Um, I think I would hate it, but it will not surprise me if we see a lineup at some point that has Jabari at the three with Collins, because I think if they want to play Jabari and Collins together, it's more likely to happen at the three and the four, because they just cannot guard a soul with those guys at the four and five together. So if they want to try that just to see what it looks like, you might see Jabari at the three. I would not do that, but I could see, you know, most NBA teams seem to think that Jabari could play the three more than I do. Um, he's played the three almost everywhere he's been at certain times. I think he's a four at this point, especially in the modern NBA where everything is kind of scaled down a little bit. I think he's a pure four, but to your point, I think we'll probably see it at some point. I mean, like if you, if they had a lineup of, Evan Turner, Alan Crabb, Cam Reddish, Jabari Parker, and Bruno Fernando. Like, who's the three and who's the four between, but just among those guys? Yeah, like, I mean that that could happen. I mean, that, like, that goes is, into the, is Evan Turner a one? Is Evan Turner like he's not going to guard point guards? No, that so goes, that he, goes that goes into the problem with Evan Turner in some ways too, because defending point guards is going to be a problem almost regardless of whenever he's on the court because he could play he could play even some point guards, but there's not really a Unless he's playing with memory, there really isn't that guy to play defensive point guards. But you know, to your point, like the whole positional thing. I know we're doing this podcast, and I've said this a couple times before on the on the re, on the previous two podcasts. You know, the positions are not as rigid as we're treating them on this podcast, and it just it was just a good way to separate the guys into a manageable you know way to discuss them. But this roster is very fluid on positions. There's only a few guys who are rigid or who are sort of rigidly put in positional. Um, roles and most of them are centers and Trey Young <laughs> and everybody else kind of can play multiple spots. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty much that makes sense to me. I think it's it's that's what we were just talking about. Sort of like point guards are point guards, centers are centers, and everybody else are just basketball players. Yep. And like you can call them forwards or shooting guards or small forwards or whatever, but just everybody else just sort of plays. And and the the point guard and the center are the really the only two like absolute positions like Trey Young is not playing any minutes at any spot other than point guard and like Alex Len is a you know is a center 
and like Bruno Fernando, Damian Jones, those guys. I, was are say, I, I think Damian Jones is like the all time example on this roster of a one position player. Like Damian Jones is never playing power forward in his life. Damian, Damian Jones is the center. We, I guess if you wanted to tell me that Alex Lynn, because, you know, at times last season, Lynn played with Deadman. I would have said Deadman was a power forward in that spot. But sure. um, Damian Jones is is a center. Like that, that's yeah. all he's ever going to do. I, there has been some Hawks fans who think that Bruno is going to play some four. I don't really see that. Um, but, you know. Shoot your shot if you'd like to. Um, all right, let's, let's go back to Parsons real quick. Um, I guess not real quick. Maybe maybe not real quick. We'll see. Uh, obviously, the big thing with Parsons, and you wrote about him this week, by the way, I guess last week now as we're recording this on PeacherHoops.com, sort of his player preview that we like to do over there on the site. But the big thing with Parsons, everybody knows it. The last three seasons, he's played 95 games and 1,862 minutes total. Um, that is, just for reference, I wrote this down, um, he's played fewer minutes in the last three seasons combined than DeAndre Bembry, a bench player, played only last season. So, yeah, Bembry, uh, one more time, great. Bembry played more minutes last season than Parsons played in three seasons. So, and Bembry was like the seventh man on that's the That's what I mean. Like It wasn't like Bembry was playing 35 minutes a game. Yeah, so not like Bembry's Bradley Beal and played yeah. 3,000 minutes. Like <laughs> Bembry was the, the seventh man played off the bench most of the time and still was... Uh, I mean, it was great to see Bembry play all 82, yes, but it just sure. highlights how how few games you know Parsons has played and how few minutes in those games he has played. Like, they really... They, once he got hurt, they really pulled him back from like the 28, 30 minute a game kind of guy to like 19, 20 minutes a game. And he just really, you know, still hasn't been able to, to prove that he can stay healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's all small sample sizes here, but last year he was pretty bad um, statistically in his 25 games at a 48% true shooting, which is obviously pretty darn um, rough. Um, the, the previous year, he actually had some pretty good numbers when he played. Um, I, I, I tend to think that Parsons can play when he is healthy. I'm not sure we full-on know that. I think he's still a skilled guy, but the health just clouds everything here. People have almost forgotten now that he was really, really good for like a four-year period in Houston, um, and then even around after that. Um, people have sort of forgotten that, that he was re- he really was a good player. It wasn't like he was just like this flute guy that got paid. The contract was kind of weird because of the injury stuff that he already had, um, but he was a good player. Um, now, we'll see if that guy is still in there at all. He turns 31 in October. Um, the Hawks do have a a very respected training staff headlined by Chelsea Lane, and hopefully they can get him on the court. With that said, Parsons has a lot of guys to climb over to play. Um, he does have sort of an interesting skill set that a lot of guys this, on this team don't really have, particularly the passing and the playmaking element that he can potentially bring, and also as a pretty solid shooter in his past. But, you know, I guess there's the two questions. One, how much is he going to play, which we, we really can't say. I mean, I, I can kind of have my skeptical hat on and just say that until we see it, I won't buy it. So I, I will say that right off the top right off the top here. But that's sort of question number one. Question number two is, what's it going to look like? Let's talk about what's it going to look like a little bit before we get to that health stuff, just because I think he's more of a punchline than anything else around the league, which is unfortunate. But, you know, as a player, what do you think he can actually still do right now? Because, you know, he's not that old. He's 30 years old at this moment, which is not crazy for someone who's a 6'10 forward with skill. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly good when he's healthy. Like, when, you know, in those first five years before he really got hurt in Houston and Dallas, you know, 
38% from three, you know, 56% true shooting or 57% true shooting in those early years was a very, very good playmaker for his position, you know, turn the ball over a little bit, but for, you know, given what he was doing, it made sense that he was turning the ball over more than other, you know, other forwards at his, you know, at his position, because, you know, obviously he's going to turn the ball over when he's got the ball in his hands, but his assist rates were through the roof throughout that. And, you know, pretty much throughout his whole career, he's been a really good playmaker. And, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that the injuries have robbed him of, other than the fact that like he just hasn't been able to literally be out there on the court, but once he's out there, the biggest difference is like how much he's getting to the rim versus how much he's not. You know, and I think that's the biggest difference from like the first five years to the last three years is that he just can't like he doesn't have the burst and the athleticism to get to the rim, and so a lot of those drives are now like pull up elbow jumpers or or he's passing out of them to you know guys who aren't quite open because people aren't necessarily he doesn't have that same driving gravity that uh, he used to have and I think that's that's been the biggest thing that the injuries on the court have sort of taken away from him is that he doesn't have the that explosiveness you know he was never a good defensive player so the fact that he you know maybe lost a, a half a step or even a full step you know, defensively in terms of how he can slide with people. Like, he was never good on that end anyway, so I don't know that that really hurt him. But, like, his bread and butter was his his shooting and his playmaking, and he was just sort of this all-around secondary playmaker. And if he, you, you really, he has to have the gravity driving to the rim in order to to open up a lot of those passing angles. And I think that's that's the biggest thing that the injuries have sort of taken away from him over these last three years. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, defensively, like you said, he was never great. Um, but he does have size and if you figure out where you're supposed to be you can kind of just be passable given his size and skill level but yeah I, I think at this point below average defense is almost assumed and you know at the three it might even be worse you know if, if, he's, if he's playing the four just kind of getting by with the size that he has could be okay but you know for me a below average defender is a good, is a good place to uh, go with Parsons and I agree with your point about him not getting, not getting to the rim either which that, that hurts efficiency like he can certainly shoot it but if he's not just a pure specialist three-point shooter, which has not really been his game in the past, he can shoot it. But when he was good, he was a shooter that also did other things. Um, I'm not sure what he's going to look like now. And again, the biggest question, you know, aside from the health, is even if he is healthy, something we have to discuss is how much the Hawks would want to play him even if he was healthy because of the fact that they have other guys. He's an expiring contract. It's a huge contract, which is also worth probably talking about a little bit anyway, is that if, you know, a lot of Hawks fans are looking out to maybe go out and, like, go like with an all-in trade, um, if they were to try to trade for, you know, for instance, like a, a disgruntled star at the trade deadline or something crazy like that, Parsons is the guy that they would try to trade because he has the contract matching. So it's an interesting trade piece, potentially, but it's, it's almost all dead money, but it, it's, it's also expiring. So there's that piece, but... Just having the guys that we're about to talk about later on the podcast, you have Reddish, you have Hunter, and then, you know, obviously at the four, you have Jabari, who's a bigger priority for sure. At the four, you have John Collins, who's the best player of this whole bunch. And then, like, so even if this, even if you assumed Parsons was healthy, which is something we're not going to do on this podcast, but even if you did assume that, I'm not sure he'd play anyway. Like, maybe he would, because of the skill level that he has and some of the things that he can bring to the table, but particularly if you want to prioritize Reddish, he's kind of the, maybe the X factor here, but if you want to play him, and I think the Hawks are going to want to play him, obviously, I'm just not sure where Parsons is supposed to get minutes, even if he is healthy. Yeah, I mean, that I, I think the organization, given what they have done over this summer, is probably closer to where you are. I certainly think, like, for me, if Parsons is healthy, like, he's absolutely a part of the rotation, and he, but then again, like, 
if everybody's healthy, Jabari Parker's not in my rotation. So like, there's that whole thing but, we went I, in. Yeah, I mean, realistically though, I I think that's not crazy. But at the same time, I think he's you know realistically Jabari is absolutely going to play ahead of Jeremy yeah. Parsons. He's a much 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 bigger priority for this team given the contract and all that stuff. And I I like Jabari more than you. I I, I think I think it's probably I don't know. I almost said safe. Nothing nothing's safe here. Um, I think I would take Jabari over Parsons. Um, as a player in a vacuum, you know, fit-wise, I don't know, man. <laughs> Parsons is just I mean, so hard Parsons, to talk about. It's just like... Right, because everything is like if he's healthy. And if he's just... Even if he's not... Even if he's not fully healthy, what you know, how much can you really rely on him? Like, I understand... If he's on your roster, you need to be able... You need to build the rest of your roster pretending that he's not on your roster. Well, and yeah, that's and that's the whole thing. Done. Like, they built this team. He's on this team... Because they wanted to consolidate and get a, get another roster spot. That's the only reason they made the trade they made was right. to get a. It wasn't. It wasn't. They weren't. Not, they were not trading for Chandler Parsons, the player, with hopes of revitalizing his career. Like that's a side benefit. Maybe he does find health, and maybe he's you know suddenly the guy he was. Maybe not guy. Maybe not the guy he was before, but a solid rotation level piece. But that isn't why they made the trade. This is not a situation where Jabari Parker, they actively went out and paid him money. They, they definitely wanted Jabari Parker to be on this team. Whereas Chandler Parsons was maybe not strictly a salary cap roster driven move, but that was a huge part of that trade. Like flat out, that's just the way that was. I mean, I'm not, you know, the Grizzlies had also made some sense for them too, but you go out and trade two expiring contracts to get one bigger expiring contract. And that's basically what that deal was. Even if Chandler Parsons obviously has a higher upside than the guys they sent out to Memphis. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's why he's around, and so that makes it... That's why you can see, based on what they've done this summer, that Parsons is probably not in their immediate plans if everybody is healthy. You know, obviously, you know, Jabari has had his own injury issues, so that's where Parsons is sort of a bit of an insurance policy for him. Of course, Parker is an insurance policy for Parsons. It's sort of, you know, if both guys are hurt, they still have enough guys, I think, to to make everything, you know, to make it work with Evan Turner. And, you know, DeAndre Hunter can play up at, at the four as well. So they've got enough guys. Obviously, Vince Carter is on this team. So there's a lot of of different players that they can put in there if Parsons and Parker aren't healthy for, for whatever reason. So, you know, I think I, the, by the way, I think, I think Vince is probably better than Parsons. Like maybe if not. Every, if both players are like a hundred percent healthy. Well, that's the thing. And we, we keep saying this, but what is a hundred percent healthy mean for Chandler Parsons at this point? I'm not really sure. I think if, you know, perfect world Chandler Parsons is, no healthy. Like he's obviously a more talented player at this point in his career, but I just think Vince is so much safer that if you gave me a choice, I would think I would just play Vince and see what happens because Vince just plays a role, and you know he does. Whereas Parsons clearly has more like on ball talent and stuff like that. But I don't know. That's just weird for me. And I, and I think if it comes down to it, same same sort of thing because Parsons is on a one year contract that's expiring. You can kind of treat him like 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 Vince. Like, I, I guess maybe, I mean, obviously Vince has the the clubhouse pedigree and the future Hall of Fame status that Jeff Parsons does not have. But in terms of just looking ahead to the future, there's no real reason to, you know, invest in Chandler Parsons as a piece for you beyond the season. Because I guess maybe they could just sign him if they want, if something, if, if, if it went great, maybe just the two sides come to an agreement to sign him again. But that does not seem super likely to me. And as a result of that... It's almost like they're on the same playing field. Like they're on the same level for me. And Vince is just so much safer and more ingratiated in the system and all that all that stuff that I think 
if you asked me to pick who plays more minutes, I would probably say Vince, which yeah, part, part of that's injury, but also part of it's just that they, they trust Vince and we know they trust Vince. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think Vince makes more sense as somebody who, if they're looking for a 10th, 11th guy to to throw in there and it's between those two guys, Vince is going to be the guy who gets that call because he's, he was around last year. He has this sort of leadership part and he's been very vocal over the last year and a bit about if I don't play, my leadership stuff sort of falls apart because the guys don't respect somebody who's not out there. And I think that sort of trickles up to the coaching staff and then trickles back down into the minutes. And, and, the, and the coaching staff can say, like, if we need somebody to, to soak up 10 minutes here, if they're going to go with Vince because that's sort of that helps them long term with the, the sort of the leadership part of it, the leadership aspect of it as well. So I think that's where they they would feel more comfortable playing Vince. Obviously they know that Vince is going to you know be around. He's going to be the the he they can trust him to do what they he they need to him to do more than Parsons just because he's been around a little bit longer. So you know I think that's part of it as well. So it's just you know it's it's unfortunate for Parsons just because if he's healthy, he's so you know he is very very talented. But it's the health is such a big question mark, and then of course the the roster construction around him is such a big question mark that it's hard to it's hard to see where his consistent minutes come from. Yeah. So all that to say, in summation here, Parsons is someone who is intriguing in a world in which he's healthy. But when you combine the roster dynamics with his health questions, you know. Expecting much from him is not a good idea, I don't think. You know, anything that he provides is kind of gravy for me. Um, and it's not crazy to think that it might work because of the fact that this is a good tra- this is a good training staff. And uh, if he, you know, if his body holds up a little bit, he'd be an interesting fit on this roster with the way that he moves the ball. I think offensively might be interesting. Um, but until we see it, my expectations are pretty low, and that's that's unfortunate because I, you know, you have to root for anybody that's been hurt this much to get it together. I do think, by the way, just to head this off for it before it comes. There's been some talk, I know in our comment section and stuff like that about, you know, Parsons and leadership and veteran stuff. I actually think that from what I have heard, people that have covered him, um, you know, Parsons has this like party boy reputation and all this stuff. And I think he certainly enjoys himself, but people seem to like Chandler Parsons. There was some weirdness in Memphis, which I did. I kind of did investigate a little bit, but it had more to do with him, him actually wanting to be on the floor. Like him, he actually wanted to play a bigger role. Um, that he was allowed to play, which is you know kind of interesting for this year because I'm not sure he's going to play this year either. But uh, I think it's a little bit overblown that he's like this like negative locker room presence. That's all I would say about this. Is this is all secondhand for me because I have not covered him individually like this. But from what I have heard, same way that I heard Evan Turner is a great guy from investigating. People like Evan Turner quite a bit. He's not an Evan Turner like level like reputation guy from what I've heard. But Parsons seems to have a pretty good approval rating around the league, which kind of might fly in the face of what you would think considering like he's always had this, this rep as someone who, you know, goes, goes after the club and all that stuff. You know, he's 30 and he might be, he's matured a little bit, but I'm not worried about him. Like there was, there's this narrative that he's going to like infect the locker room with negative stuff and keep him away, keep him away, away from Trey Young. Like, no, he, he's fine. It's not a big deal. If he goes out and if he goes out in Atlanta when he's hurt, I, I don't really care about that, but he seems to be a pretty decent guy from all accounts. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is not a Dwight Howard situation is basically no. what you're. And by the way, of... they'll, they'll, they'll just send him home. Like if there's, if there was ever an issue with Chandler Parsons on an expiring contract, they would just say, all right, bye Chandler. Like he's not like he's, right. he's not, he doesn't have to be around. This is not a, it's not a, big, right. it's not a big deal. And that, and the sort of the negativity that came out of his camp last year, like you alluded to, 
was and, and why Memphis sort of sent him home was not because he was a, a negative on their locker room from like a party perspective. It was a negative because he wanted to play and he was itching to get back out there and they weren't they were sort of in a tankier direction than he wanted to than they <laughs> thought that he, he they thought that he was gonna help yeah, he them came, win. He games. came back though and played some, which was interesting. Yeah, he played later. once they once they were really done, then they he came back and played a little bit and was not very good, so I guess it worked out for them. No, he was he bad last year. Well. It's worth uh, I think I said this a little bit quickly earlier. He was really bad last year in his limited time. Like really bad. Yeah. But the year before was great. So yeah. like it's very and like with you know, roughly the same, you know, it played more minutes than really the so year before. More, more conflicting um, data, yay. More stuff that's I mean, like yeah, we don't know anything about Jalen Parsons. <laughs> we have no idea what he's gonna be this year. Like if he's like if he's healthy, does he can he get back that that sort of burst that, you know, will allow him to turn the corner and get to the rim? Like, I don't think so, but maybe like there it's possible. That they, you know, it's possible that the minutes that he's played over the last three years were like he was at seventy-five percent, but good enough to get out there. Versus the times where he was not on the floor was when he was like at fifty percent or worse and just couldn't play. Like maybe he's maybe he hasn't been at a hundred percent for any even twenty minutes since he left Dallas. Like I don't know. I mean maybe. Like we just we just we know so little about it and. I think we'll know more in preseason. We'll know more in the first, you know, month or so of the regular season, sort of where he's at from a health perspective, where, you know, where they see his role, you know, what they see his role being, all of that stuff. So it's just, you know, it's hard for me to to really say, like, he's definitely the best small forward on the roster. It's like, maybe, I mean, three years ago, he absolutely is. But like, who who knows where, you know, where he is right now? Yeah, it's, it seems unlikely that that would be true, but it's not in completely impossible given where he used to be not that long ago. All right, that's enough on Chandler Parsons for now, and uh, you know we'll come back if we need to on that. Let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back. We'll come right back with uh, more talk about Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter. So stay tuned, and hold on one second. All right, Jeff, we're back, and uh, I'm gonna get in front of this right now. We have talked a lot. I, mean, I know I have even more than you. We talked a ton about Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter because I am a draft guy. So I did a ton of deep dives from like, the, you know, even before this, but middle of April until draft night was basically all draft on this podcast. And because we knew where the Hawks were going to be drafting for a lot of that time, I've probably talked about these guys for multiple hours each. I know I have. So this is not going to be quite the uh, two-part extravaganza that Jabari Parker and John Collins were on the Power Forward podcast. And it's only because I've just said a ton about these guys, and uh, you have also to a lesser extent, and also you're you're not a huge draft guy. You do some draft stuff, but this, that's not really your bread and butter either. So it's gonna be a little bit interesting here because you know we've said a lot on these guys. On these guys. Um, first things first, though, let's talk about Cam Reddish because he is an enigma in a big way right now. Um, I think people can reasonably disagree on his prospect status. I was I thought pretty pretty reasonably high. Of course, Hawks fans were even higher, but I had I had number eight on my board um, overall. And he went number, you know, he went number ten on the draft, so pretty good value there for the Hawks. And for the Hawks, I would have had him even higher because if you remove the point guards, you know, he would have been a top five, six guy for me from a Hawks perspective in the in this draft class. But even I am considered to be low based on where the fan base is. The fan base is really in love with him, which I understand. He's a really talented player. Um, just to set the stage a little bit here, because I think that's gonna be kind of most of what we're doing on these two guys is just kind of overviewing. Reddish was an awesome high school prospect, like a top five guy in his class. Duke, five-star, all that stuff, was not very good this season. That's something we have to just say off top. He did not play well this season. We'll talk, we'll talk about why, potentially, as we get going here. But he does have, at least for me, 
an encouraging defensive baseline that gets lost. It's one of my favorite parts about his game, honestly. Most people focus on his, on his offense and the fact that he used to be a playmaker, all this stuff at the high school level. I actually like his defense quite a bit. I thought he was pretty good last year on defense. He's long. He's um, you know capable defensively, and I think he um, has pretty good upside on that on, on that end of the floor. And then of course his shooting is kind of. You know, as, mo- as for most guys, it's probably a swing skill for Cam Reddish because he didn't shoot it that well in college, but it has a nice stroke, and everybody kind of believes that he's going to be able to shoot it, and I'm kind of on that bandwagon as well. Um, you know, there's multiple ways to get into this. Number one, though, what did you make of him pre-draft? Because I know we talked about this a little bit on the podcast previously, but he was kind of divisive because the people that like analytics quite a bit, like I had some people on this podcast that covered the NBA draft that were not high in Cam Reddish because if you just watch him in college, it was rough. But so... All that to say, like you're not a huge, you know, prep watching, uh, you know, AAU dive in kind of um, draft analyst. So what do you what do you think of Cam Reddish right now? Yeah, I mean, certainly my experience with Cam Reddish was is relatively limited to you know what I've heard from other people who are smarter than I am and like what he did at Duke last season. And so if you just sort of look at those two things, it's hard to understand how he was the 10th pick in the draft, but like I had him at eight. So it wasn't like I was low on him. I think I had him at eight. No, actually I had Brandon Clark at eight. So I had him at nine, but you know, I think it was, I think there's a a lot to be said for the, the core injury and like that whole thing. And I think we'll sort of get into that, but his overall sort of archetype of three and D wing who can do, you know, make some plays off the dribble. Like that's sort of the, the vision. That's the the vision for every guy who is six foot seven to six foot 10. Yeah. I mean, to be able to do all that six, eight in shoes with with a seven, a seven foot, you know, seven foot and a half inch wingspan. Who's also supposed to be a fluid athlete. Like he's definitely fluid. You know, the explosiveness is something we talk about What you talk about the injury. That might be part of that. I think he's an overrated athlete, but he's not a bad athlete. He's, you know, and at that size, if you're skilled and athletic and long, and you know what you're doing on defense. That's uh, and and by the way, you're supposed to be able to shoot as well. That that's a you know even even if you, even if you just remove and don't buy into the playmaking stuff, because that's kind of I think the number one dividing factor right now in terms of reddish is people that think he can be a playmaker offensively. People that don't because if you if you're prioritizing college, it just wasn't there. You know the ball handling was not there in college. The explosiveness was not was not there in college. But in high school, he was an on, an on ball player. So. As most guys are, but there was reason to believe that he could, that he could do that. But even if you just take that away, which I would not do right now, I wouldn't close the door on that by any means. But even if you did that right now and just said Cam Reddish is going to be a three and D prospect at his size with his jump shot and his defense, that's a good prospect. Like even if you don't believe in the playmaking stuff, if he shoots the ball decently and plays defense, like I think he's going to play defense, that's already a top ten pick in this in this bad draft that was last year. So. I, it's funny, I've said this before, I'm higher on his floor than his ceiling, which is like the opposite of what you would think for someone like Cam Reddish, but I think his floor is kind of high. I mean, not necessarily in terms of, you know, it's kind of high end, I'm not, I'm not saying he's definitely going to be a you know high-level starter, but I'd be pretty surprised if he's not a rotation player because of the fact that he can shoot and defend. And that's like a pretty a pretty bland explanation of his talents because there is more upside beyond that, and I'm not disputing that by any means. But I think, in general, one of my one of my takes on Cam Reddish is that his floor is being ignored. Um, I think his ceiling is overrated, and his floor is underrated. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think he, when you have a guy who has this this 
relatively super high ceiling that a guy like Cam Reddish has with the ball handling and the scoring and, you know, everything that he has sort of shown as a, a an all-around player at the high school level and what he sort of didn't show but maybe could have shown at Duke. Those are, I think the, the thing we talk about when we talk about high ceiling players is that as people elevate the, somebody's ceiling, they also just sort of naturally lower their floor because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just sort of a thing that we do. Like he from the middle, bust. everyone has yeah, to be if overbust. If the ceiling goes up, then that means the floor has to go down so that fifty percent is still fifty percent. It's like, well, that's not necessarily where this, you know, where where this goes. You know, I think that you know, you're. It makes sense that perhaps his defense is not necessarily talked about that much because oh, people not. don't. It's not really care about that. People <laughs> just don't care, including like some of the people who are making decisions in the NBA, like just don't care about defense. And it's like fine, like I, you know, I understand it because defense is much more of a team-based activity, and you can teach it. That's why, like you, you shouldn't pay for defense because you can always teach a guy to defend. I mean, in a, in sort a way. of. That's so overrated, though. I mean, I, I, I'm with you, but you still have to have defensive talent. Like you, you can get guys to you can you can make guys better, but you know. For instance, you're not you're never going to make a guy with no talent into a good defender. You you can make him passable, maybe, but you still have to at the NBA level you have to have talent on defense. Yes, but I guess if you had to pick between like what if you had to do that same thing? Yeah, for it's easier to fix defense and offense. I'm with you. Yes, I, I, you I cannot totally understand take that. an offensive player and make him a passable offensive player. Like it's it's doable, but it's almost impossible. Whereas you can take a mediocre to bad defensive player and at least make him passable within a scheme. Uh, whereas, you know, just the opposite just seems to be almost impossible to do. So I think that's where people come back with like, you can teach defense, but you can't teach offense in a way, you know, obviously you, you can do things to help a guy on both ends of the floor, but you, you can take a bad defender and make him a decent defender much more easily. And so I think that's where, that's where you, you know you have that conversation about defense. Reddish's defense, you know, we'll see where you know where he comes in his rookie year. I don't have super high expectations for him this year, but it's hard to know what to expect because, like, I mean, and also, when was the last time this guy played well? Like, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this now. So, twenty eighteen. Yeah, let's let's do this now because. You know, as in general, I say this all the time, and people, are, I'm sure people are sick of it. Rookies are generally bad, um, and if you, I always take that as a principle of mine. And if you extract that from Cam Reddish, who was not a good college player, it's even more rare. Um, you know, guys who struggle in college do not usually make, suddenly become quality NBA players as rookies. Um, Reddish was much better defensively than offensively in college. You know, offensively, these numbers are not new to anybody listening to this podcast, probably, but. He shot 39% from two, which is historically poor. Like, no one's ever been that bad in terms of, uh, maybe at least among non-point guards, no one's ever been that bad and been a Lowry pick in my um, recollection. It was really bad. Um, the shooting as from three was a little bit overrated. He did shoot the ball a lot from three, which is good. He got up 10 threes per 40 minutes. That's good. Um, but sub-50% true shooting is bad, obviously. All that fun stuff. Um, to your point, though, he was not good last year, and even if there's a reason for that, he wasn't good. So, you know, he hasn't played well in an overall sense since high school. And, you know, there was an interesting piece from Chris Kirshner that I talked about a little bit last week with Tower Jones, um, where there was some context, you know, Reddish's dad said that he was dealing with broken ribs and had a toe injury in college in addition to the core muscle stuff. And I'm, I'm firmly on the record as thinking that injuries did bother him at the college level. I, I hesitate to assign you know, firm values to that. Cause you know, it, we, we just have, we, I have trouble assuming 
things. But if we assume that that hampered him in some way, I'm not sure that was the only reason why he struggled, but it was probably a reason, and the core muscle stuff would definitely explain the finishing at the rim, number one. Just not wanting to have contact and all that stuff, that would be a, a red flag that you would at least like to see addressed. Um, but all that to say, like to your point that you, that you just said, he's not been good for a while, so as a rookie, again, this is only as a rookie for this season, which is what we're talking about now for the most part, you know, I can't imagine him playing well early on in the season. Because he's not played basketball in an organized way since March, he played. He was still working out and doing, you know, individual workouts for teams until May, but then he got hurt and hasn't played since. So I mean, he's playing, obviously doing some stuff now, but he's not been full cleared for contact at least as of a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm not sure as of now, but regardless, he would have basically missed four months. That, that's conservatively missed four months from actually playing full court NBA basketball, and he's never played NBA basketball before. So. The factors that you have to say between not good in college, missing all summer, taking four months, not off, but four months away from contact, you know, I can't imagine that player is going to be good in the NBA in October. I just, I guess it's not impossible, but if you're looking for Reddish, it's it's much more about development during the season and the future, clearly, than, and by the way, this is not just Reddish, but he's just, he's, he's more, he's a more extreme example of a rookie that it's probably going to look like a rookie. Like, even Kevin Herter, who I thought was probably more NBA-ready coming in, because at least he had the one elite skill. Um, Kevin Herter missed the summer last year and was, by all accounts, pretty bad in training camp and preseason because he hadn't played basketball in a long time. And Reddish has been out even longer than Herter was and didn't play at nearly the same level in college that Herter did. So, all those things to say, yeah, Kevin Reddish could be, could be raring to go by January, but... In October, I can't imagine him being a plus NBA player, which is not a shot at him. He's a rookie. Like, most rookies are bad, and all those factors, in addition to most rookies being bad, and it just kind of gets weird. So this podcast is about this season, and this, this season is going to be about development for Ken Reddish more than anything. Yeah, I mean, I think if he... Like, it, what would be considered a win for him this year? Like Play, if you, playing, if, playing decently at some point for me, that's a win. If, he, if he's in the rotation, and by the way, they have every reason on a team that's not probably going to be competing. I mean, maybe on the high end, competing for the eight seed for a while. I know people think that's conservative, but that's fine. Even if you thought this team was going to win 40 games, which I don't, um, there's still every reason to give Cam Reddish some development time on the floor. You know, in October, your first game of the year, is he a part of your best 9-10 man group? I would say probably not. But there's still an argument to play him. And I think for a win, to your question, just showing something and then by the middle of the season, not thinking he's a just an actively bad NBA player would be a win. And that's that seems like a lot. I'm sure that seems really low. But again, rookies are bad. Even Even rookies who are generally considered to be good rookies, like all rookie team rookies, most of those guys are bad because rookies are bad. So there were guys last season that were top 10 picks that got some attention who were not very good in the NBA because for one reason, one reason or the other, it's usually defense, and I think Russia's defense can be pretty decent, but combining factors, if he's just okay for most of the season, that'd be a huge win. If he just doesn't kill you, if, you're, if we're not coming on this podcast after games and saying Reg was the worst player on the floor – that's good. I mean, because he's super young and he's really talented. And if he's with, with this late of a start and, and, and as rough as his um, college season was, if he's just solid ish by December, like that's a huge win for me. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, I think if he at any point throughout the year graduates from this is not the worst player on our team from from, from the Hawks' perspective, I think that's where that's 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 where he is. That's where he's bringing positive development. Yeah, to people, the table. Are, people are gonna get mad about that, but it's you know it's again this is not this is not a future exercise. This is just this season, and I think that's a you know if everyone was healthy on this team, and you told me you have to go play a game like on October first. Like the like the first day of training camp, basically, with what we know right now, he probably is the worst player on the team. In terms yeah. of in terms of in terms of right this second, not not talent. He clearly is not the worst, worst talent and the worst future piece. But given that he just missed four months and was bad in college, I mean, he's definitely in the running for worst player on the team in October. Like, sure. m- maybe we're wrong about this. I'm I'm totally up for that. But again, just going off what we know only, he probably isn't going to be good right away. <laughs> it's just. Play the percentages here, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think he... I think it would be a, a massive upset if he is even, like, decently below average by, like, December, january I mean, the Rookie of the Year stuff... I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody here. And we, we have people on our staff that are really high on Cam, and I, that's, that's fine. I would be absolutely and utterly floored if Cam Reddish was a first-team all-rookie guy this year. I've seen people picking him for like picking picking him for like top three rookie of the year and stuff like that. That would absolutely stun me. And again, I was higher on Cam than national the national consensus in the draft. It's not an anti Cam thing, but again, all the facts that I just said. He's he's a long term guy. He just he just is. Like again, maybe by January February he's looking like the guy that we hope he's going to be. But. There's gonna be some growing pains. Even Kevin Herter had growing pains early, and again, like he came on really strong and was much better than I thought he was gonna be as a rookie. But yeah, it's the rookie of the year stuff. You're you're not setting him up to succeed with that expectation, and hopefully the Hawks understand that. I'm I'm hoping that, that they believe that. But just the national stuff and you know the the rookie survey, all that stuff. Suddenly it became oh Cam Reddish rookie of the year sleeper. Like nah, man. I mean I I can't I just can't see it. I guess the talent. Is such if you if you if you if you just want to bet on talent, I, I totally understand that. But if there's a rookie of the year sleeper on the roster, it's 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 Hunter. It's not Reddish because Hunter's going to be more ready to play. If you want to argue Reddish has higher upside than Hunter, I won't stand here and argue with that. I, I'm not sure I agree by the way, which is maybe maybe that's a hot take. But you know, comparing comparing the two between age, college production, NBA readiness. I think Bruno Fernando is more likely to be a positive NBA player as a rookie than Cam Reddish is. Yeah, I mean, Reddish right now, like we were saying, like he's the worst player on the team right now, I think. And so, like, if he ever can just graduate from, like, being better than, like, Damian Jones, like, uh, it's obviously a difficult comparison to make, but, like, if he just... <laughs> yeah, that, that's one be... where, you know, what Damian Jones could be awful. Like, we don't, we just don't know enough about, about Damian Jones. So that's why I, I, I won't say it as definitively as you are to say he's the worst player on the team. I do think that's a reasonable opinion, though. Like, he might right. be the worst player on the team. He might be. He's in that discussion where he is bad enough to where he is going to be actively a negative for, for a team on the court, you know, in the first month or so of the year. And it's, it's really, the, I think the biggest thing is that there's not like one thing to watch with him. It's not like he's good in a couple of areas and just needs to improve on this one area here. It's like just everything. Like there's not, you just, you, there's no one thing to watch because you have to watch literally everything. Well, the, and the, it, the thing about Reddish and, you know, I, I think that his safest trait as an NBA player is his defense, which might 
again, be an unconventional opinion by me, but I think his safest long-term trade is his defense. But rookies don't generally play great defense. Even DeAndre Hunter, who we're, who we're about to get to, we all agree that Hunter is going to be a good defender. I love his defense. Everyone agrees on this. At the same time, even guys who are considered to be awesome defensive prospects, even as as rookies, they're not always good. Like maybe, maybe he'll be fine. I think he's going to be fine at worst. Like I'm not saying he's going to be bad as a rookie because Hunter has proven it at the highest level of college, et cetera, et cetera. But when you factor in the fact that I really believe that Cam's highest floor attribute is his defense, if you f- translate that to the NBA, even that may not pop right away. Because rookies, rookie defense is really hard, man. Like guys have to figure out what they're doing at a, at a different place. And you know, all respect to Coach K, who is a, definitely a highly divisive figure. He was not playing NBA schemes on defense in college. He just wasn't. So he wasn't playing NBA schemes on either end of the. Well, yeah, offense is worse. I'm just, I, I, I just yeah. mean, you know, offense is well documented how they weren't playing NBA offense, but they were the, barely playing offense at all. Yeah, but all that to say, I, I do think. I like Cam's defense quite a bit, and I think he actually might be fine on that end right away. But even that is not an assumption that you can really make based on rookies and track record of their of playing defense because even guys who end up being super-duper defensive stars are not always great as rookies defensively. It's just not the way that works. And, I mean, it's not like he's walking into a renowned defensive system and a team that really cares about defense no, I mean, and they has need good defenders at other positions. It's like... He's walking into a team that hasn't defended well in, in a few years and does not have good defensive talent and doesn't seem to have an organizational imperative to play defense at all. I mean, well, I, I do think not... I, do, I, I do think that this draft, you know, we talked we talk about this a lot of the time, but just worth saying real quickly, this all three guys they drafted in this draft class have more defensive talent than almost anybody they have in the roster. Like almost anybody, yeah. they they clearly prioritize defense more in this draft than they have in any in any other moves they've had in the last couple of years. And the whole and the whole Travis Schlenk era, this year's draft was their number one defensive focus. <laughs> like they haven't really done defense anywhere else. And this draft, they drafted three guys who I think all project to be good or better on defense. They're not. It's not. That's not a lock by any means. But Hunter. Very obviously, was a defense first kind of prospect. Reg, is, Reg, I think is going to be a good defender, and even Fernando, given his physical tools, he is the longest to go because the, the job of playing defense as a center is really tough and all that stuff. But even he has defensive talent, so they clearly try to do that. But to your point, you know, Lloyd Pierce is renowned for his defense, and I think he knows. I think he knows what he's going to be doing. But between last season and what we didn't see, and then just the roster talent and the organizational struggles on that end of the floor in the last two three seasons, you know. Him coming into the culture, he'll be well coached. I think he'll be well coached. I, I, we, can, we can assume that, but you know they're going to be relying on these guys. As we're, as, as we're talking about here, we'll we're, get to Hunter in a second. The starting small four on this team is going to be is going to be a rookie, and I think the primary backup might be a rookie too. Like if they if they come into the season and just prioritize Cam Reddish as the primary backup small forward, they could be playing forty minutes a night at small four with a rookie. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like I think that's pretty much what uh, what they should do is is. You know, start Hunter, play him, whatever, 25 minutes a game and play Reddish the other, whatever, 23 minutes a game and just play as much, as many minutes as you as you can, especially, you know, depending on where Parsons is health-wise, depending on where he is sort of athletically, whether he can play the three anymore or whether he's more of a four. But, you know, even if Parsons is fully healthy and is playing 
10 minutes a game at the at the small forward the other 38 minutes should go to these two rookies and it's you know so reddish is going to have his opportunities to to get out there and i think it's just about you know how how much is he going to kill them early in the year and if and when can he when is he going to turn that corner is he going to turn the corner in january or is it going to be like next october before he really turns that corner yeah that that is the big question for this season i know we just talked about cam quite a bit it's worth remembering and i guess emphasizing I do like Cam Reddish as a prospect. I am skeptical of rookies, but that's just that's not a Cam Reddish thing. That's an everybody that's an everybody thing on rookies. So I know people are gonna get mad about some things with what we said on this podcast. That that's okay. Um, but I actually kind of believe in Cam Reddish more than most. I think he's a talented guy. It's just rookies are gonna struggle, and uh, if they're playing Reddish in October and November, it is probably them prioritizing development over current production. And by the way, I fully endorse that. I would come out if, as long as Reddish is not going to flat out embarrass himself, and they'll they'll know that from training camp. Um, as long as he's not going to be embarrassing, play him. Like yeah, put him out there, a, do it. They're not in as much as people are thinking. Like oh, they could make a run for the eight seeds. Like that's not going to happen. And like, even, I just by don't. the way, even if it does, like even even if you thought that, and again, we're I'm not quite there yet. But even if you thought that, guess what? The prior the the, the priority if you could if you give me a choice between. Eight seed going all in and trying to win this year, or nine ten seed and playing Cam Reddish a bunch. I would choose the second one because I'd choose the second one even if it was the fourteen seed. Yeah, no, like I, I mean I'm with you future. on this. I'm, I'm just saying, like, even if it's just that narrow of a decision, yeah, you, you have to go with with the development aspect because even if this team wildly exceeds my expectations and wins forty five games, guess what? <laughs> that's a that's probably a first round exit. And what oh, does that yeah. actually get you? Some experience in the playoffs, which is worth something. But if you're doing that on the strength of, you know, Evan Turner and Jabari Parker and guys who are, you know, veteran pieces, if you're doing that on the strength of Alex Lynn, who might leave him for agency and all this stuff, if you're doing that and it's all about veterans, like, what does that do for you? I mean, obviously it would be all about veterans because you're going to be relying heavily on Trey Young and John Collins. But if it's not, with Cam Reddish, and if it's not with Hunter playing a big role, like that doesn't mean that much. It helps it helps Collins and Harder and Young for sure, but you drafted these guys with top ten picks. You invested them as core and then as core pieces, and you know in an instant the core for this team went from three players on June twentieth to five players on June twenty second. Yeah. And at the very least, Hunter and Reddish are part of your core. We'll see we'll see if that works. But if you use top ten picks on guys, they become part of your core. And and when they fit so perfectly with the rest of your core, yeah, you know, like especially Hunter. I mean, but both yeah, of them really, both Hunter, of them. but even Reddish, like Reddish yeah, fits super well with the, the rest of these guys on the on the, on the, in the in the core that they had going into the draft, and so it makes like and so that's where like the, as negative as sort of we've been talking about Reddish in terms of his current day skill level and his current day production, like he's a big part of this team going forward. Like he's on he's in that core group of like this is our team going forward everybody else is expendable but he's in that inner sanctum of like these are our five guys and you will see whether he deserves it there's obviously a lot of sort of flexibility with guys who come in and out of that inner sanctum but he's in there right now because of what they spent to get him because of how well he fits because of the prospect level that he could be like he's and you know we're both we both had him in the, in our top tens. Like we both endorsed them picking him at number ten. Like it made sense for them to do what they did. We're just sort of cautioning that like just because they're really high on him and because he's part of their core, just that doesn't mean that he's going to be good right away. 
that's that's a very very good point and uh we could probably leave it there. One last thing, because I have it on my notes that I wanted to ask you and I forgot to do it. There's been a little bit of buzz about Reddish like playing like backup point guard and like challenging for shooting guard minutes. And for me, I'm only, I'm only speaking for me right now, that's not something that I would be looking for him to do. I think Cam Reddish is a forward through and through. Um, you know, there's again, it's been out there like, is there a chance that Cam Reddish could could, could unseat Kevin Herter as the long-term shooting guard? And I'm like, uh, could he be better than Cam Reddit? I mean, sorry, could, could he be better than Kevin Herter long term? Absolutely. That that's 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 a possibility for sure. Um, I don't think Cam Reddish is a shooting guard. I think Cam Reddish is like a hybrid three four. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and if he's better than Kevin Herter, then that's awesome, and then play them together. Like that's right. all, that's that's, that's really what I mean. I it was it wasn't really about that Herter comp, the, the Herter comp, but it's like there's this narrative out there, and again, it's not impossible. But if I'm projecting Cam Reddish, this is just me. He's a forward for me. Um, and if he if he has if, if the ball handling comes back that that's a plus, but he's a legit six eight with a seven one wingspan. He's not a shooting guard. He's not he's not like a floating guy like Kevin Herter. I think he's someone especially defensively. You would want him as like a you know not not physical in the way that, that Hunter is right now, but someone who can defend threes and kind of just be a a hybrid piece for you. So I just wanted to at least say that out loud, and I think you agree based on what you just said. I, you know, there's this notion that he's like a backup point guard option. I know Lloyd Pierce kind of said that, and that's fine if they want to try it just to see how it works. In the same way that Kevin Herter will be tried, and something you've been talking about forever, you know, using a guy at point guard this year in a development way does not mean he's a point guard long term. <laughs> that just means it's a good way to try him. Like I think no one would say Kevin Herter is a point guard, but we've also endorsed them using him in that way sometimes. Like that could be the case for Reddish. I don't really see that right now. Honestly, I think his ball handling is a little bit overrated. But if they like it and want to try that, that's totally fine. He's still a forward. I mean, if they want to run the second unit offense through Evan Turner and Jabari Parker, like sure, okay, give Cam Reddish some 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 possessions too as the primary guy, like on the backup units when Trey Young's out of the game. You know, long term, I don't know that that's necessarily part of his sort of long term skill profile if he's going to you know is he going to be a primary playmaker on backup units long term probably not but this is the time to experiment with those sorts of things like you don't want to experiment you don't want to not you don't want to not do that and then hope to come back to it a couple years from now because that's when the team's going to be good and then they don't have that room for error if he's not good you know so i think it's this is the time to do things like that i mean that's what i i wrote the whole thing about kevin herter last year and we talked about it on this show like he should have been the backup point guard. Like Jalen Adams should not have even been on the team for me or should not have been in the rotation every night after Jeremy Lin was bought out. Give Kevin Herter all of those minutes because they don't matter anyway. You're not going to win. It doesn't matter. You're trying to develop these guys long-term. And that's what I think that's what Kevin Herter would have. He would have benefited very much from just having the ball in his hands over and over and over. And even if he sucked, like that's fine. You know, and I think that that would be a not to that same extent, but that would be a smart use of, of reddish. You know, particularly late in the season. Yep, go ahead and try that. That'd be totally fine with me. All right, let's go. Let's go to Hunter. Um, you know, again, someone we've talked about ad nauseum. I know I have. Uh, he was one of the guys I was super high on in the draft. Um, we're not going to do trade talk today because um, we talked about that. I mean, way too much in the past. Um, my synopsis, real quickly, is that I thought they overpaid, but. I love Ke- I love DeAndre Hunter, so um, that'll that, that'll be all we talk about on the trade for now. Um, with that said, they clearly love Hunter. There was an article this week from Chris Kirchner, which I implore everybody to read about how you know the Hawks zeroed in on him and all that stuff. Um, they clearly loved him the entire way, and apparently his camp wanted him in Atlanta too. Easy to see why, because um, 
DeAndre Hunter is a perfect fit. We talked about this a, little, a second ago with Reddish and Hunter, but if you were building um, a situation for, for DeAndre Hunter in a lab, it would be a team that desperately needs a small forward defender. Check. It would be a team that doesn't have a small forward on the roster before they signed him, before they drafted him. Check. It'd be a team that emphasizes three-point shooting. Check. Um, what else? What else can we talk about? Um, doesn't really have uh, an on-ball defender. Check. All these things. Hunter is a perfect fit. Now, it could be said that they overpaid, and that's totally fine. But he's an awesome fit, and I thought he was a really good prospect. I had him number five on my board, and it was honestly a tied for four, basically, with Jarrett Culver and DeAndre Hunter. Those those guys were very very close for me. Um, I loved Hunter. I was higher on him the most the entire way for basically two years. I thought he, I thought he should have left after, after his freshman year. I thought he, I thought he would have been a lottery pick two years ago. So, yeah, he's really good. Um, now, uh, this season alone, Jeff, is interesting because he's an older prospect than some of the guys that you might think um, because he was a he was a two year college guy. He was really efficient in college, um, offensively. Um, but not as productive as you would think defensively. That's been a knock on him. Part of that is Virginia playing super-duper slow and playing conservative conservative defense, but that's a uh, quote-unquote knock on him. But, you know, he had great numbers in college. His individual defense was elite by any measure. Everyone loves his individual defense. That's probably his calling card right now, just the way that he he locks guys up defensively. That's a lot of information that I I just threw out there, but um, my rookie thing still applies. But if you were trying to find a rookie that is probably built to contribute more than most, Hunter would probably be it because he's an older guy who plays defense and can shoot already, and that's kind of a good starting place for a uh, first-time player. Yeah, I mean, he should walk right in and be the starting small forward and just play, if he's healthy, play 82 games and start all 82 of them. Like, he should be that, like, that's where he's at with the sort of in in the landscape of this team and just sort of the the level that he's already sort of shown through two years at, at UVA and just he's he he makes so much sense fits so well that like if you had him at five like I had him at five as well but you know just behind Jarrett Culver but it was basically 4A and 4B and if they had decided on Culver uh, ahead of, of of DeAndre Hunter that would have been weird because like just because of you know how much Culver sort of overlaps with Kevin Herter but like DeAndre Hunter doesn't really overlap with anybody else. Like he's just a perfect fit for this roster. That's why they identified him. That's why they went up and and, and got him. You know the the trade was what it was. But now that you sort of move forward, the trade you know you can't redo you can't undo that. So now that they're moving forward with Hunter, he's he's the best fit of anybody in the draft that's not named Zion Williamson. So like he makes so much sense for this roster that it's and not just for the roster as it's currently constructed, but just for every iteration of the future roster like he makes sense no matter what because even if they end up with say in 2021 they end up with some sort of superstar forward well he still fits like he still perfectly fits next to that guy you know so he can be the sort of secondary forward who is a high level defender can shoot the three really well like he has that and then if he can develop the sort of if he has any level of development outside of that, that would be great. But even if he's just sort of a high level three and D forward, that's, you know, going to be a huge win for them. Yeah. And that's, you know, as a draft conundrum, people will be disappointed if, if that's all he is, quote unquote, all he is, is a three and D forward. Yeah, but, but that'd be ridiculous. But guess what? That's, that's a really good outcome for someone in this draft. Um, if he's I, a high level three and D player, like he's a max player and you absolutely are. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, the comps are out four. there, you know, like a pure three and D player, like a Robert Covington type would be like 
a $25 million player if he's healthy sure. and consistent. And that's, that's really Otto Porter, but better on defense. Yeah. Like, all that. Otto Porter was a max guy anyway. Like true. That's what I mean. So like, you know, and I'm sure if you told some Hawks fans right now that Hunter becomes Robert Covington, they'd be upset. And uh, that would be, that'd sad. be ridiculous. So, um, by the way, as a rookie season, because again, I'm trying to confine this as much to his, to this, to this year only as I, as I possibly can, but it's, it's tough for rookies, but this year only, I have an interesting comp for you from last year's class. Um, as a maybe a baseline, I think it may be a little bit better than this, but um, still a baseline that I think is pretty pretty reasonable. And that's Mikhail Bridges. Last year, Mikhail Bridges was a lottery pick um, in a better draft. Um, he went a lot lower than Hunter did, but a lottery pick in the better draft. I think those guys, having scouted both drafts, those guys were considered to be pretty similar prospects. Most people had them like in the mid-lottery. Hunter ended up going higher than projected. Bridges went lower than projected, but still, those guys were in the same general vicinity, and they were both veteran college guys, 6'8 forwards, um, who you know had high, high, high pedigrees, national titles, all this stuff. It's not a perfect comp, but it's pretty easy to see one. Um, Bridges played 2,400 minutes as a rookie, which is a ton of minutes as a rookie. He was really solid. 56% true shooting, which is you know above league average, uh, slight, if only slightly. Um, good, solid defense. Nothing spectacular as a rookie, but a, a solid defender right away. But play was super low usage. 12% usage on a bad team. He was on a bad defense, which Hunter probably is going to be on a bad defense this year because look look around him. Um, so it's not perfect all the way across, but what do you, I, I didn't prep you for this. What do you make of a of a rookie-only comp between what Hunter projects to be able to do potentially and what Bridges did last year? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think if the, the upside on Hunter is higher because of the very limited but technically still there amount uh, that he can do with the ball in his hands. Maybe like there's some of that, like maybe that's not a rookie thing. Maybe yeah, he has, he has more than Bridges year. for sure. Like Bridges, even as a, even, even as a college player, Bridges was, was almost exclusively a catch and shoot three point shooter. Uh, yeah. Hunter, I think Bridges was a better shooter, um, a better, a better three point shooter than Hunter at the college level. So that's one, not in his direction, but Hunter, as you alluded to, had much more of like a face-up game, much more of a ball-in-his-hands game than Bridges did. And by the way, Bridges didn't really need to because they, they had a lot of weapons. But again, it's not, it's not a perfect comp because of that, but you're right to point that out, that Hunter does have some more offensive upside with the ball in his hands, whereas Bridges, if you had to pick one thing he's better at than Hunter as an offensive player, it's probably three-point shooting, and that's kind of it. Yeah, and that makes sense. I think that he's... Bridges is... I mean, the numbers don't really bear it out from last year, but he's a very good three-point shooter. Hunter, we're, we'll see. Like he has, like the the release has to, you know, speed up. I think he's going to shoot well, like well, but not. You know, there's some there's some flexibility there's some in there. concerns. Yeah, there, there's some like maybe maybe he's Trevor Ariza and shoots like thirty four percent for his career. Not that that wouldn't be a disaster. But that's a big gap between that and guys who shoot high 30s. Like, that's that's kind of the wiggle range for Hunter. I think he's not going to be a non-shooter. We've already seen him be able to shoot it. But, you know, 34%, 35% versus 38 39% is a big gulf. And that's that's really the question with Hunter's three-point shooting is what kind of shooter he's going to be long-term. And you're, you're right to question the release a little bit. And, you know, college, he wasn't a specialist like that. He wasn't – Virginia didn't really play – they took a lot of threes in some ways, you know, but a lot of that was like Kyle Guy, Ty Jerome doing stuff off screens and all that stuff. They didn't really play – like Villanova played a very NBA-ish offense, kind of in a rare way for college. Um, whereas Virginia – it's tough to really take a ton from that, other than the fact that Hunter can shoot. I just don't. I don't think. We, I don't think we could possibly know 
how well he's going to shoot NBA threes. That's a that's a, that's a legitimate question. It's not going to be bad, but I'm not sure like he's going to be elite. He's going to be elite 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 three point shooter by any means because that'd be a great outcome. It'd be awesome if he could do that. But I would certainly if you offered me 36 percent for his career, I would take it. Yeah, I think I would too. I think that makes that sort of the the mid range outcome that uh, you would you would take that if you're Travis Link and you're running the team and you can just assume that he's 36% on decent volume. It's really, I mean, on the granular level, that's where the release timing comes in because whether he's 34, 36 or 38%, it's, it's a lot. It has a ton to do with like, what's the perception of him and, and what can you, do you have to guard? Do you have to stand right next to him or do you, can you, play off of him a little bit and know that you can recover because he takes three and a half years to get his jump shot off. You know, so I think those are sort of, that's where the release time comes into play. Certainly if he's good and the release time is slow, then it doesn't really matter because he's, you know, he's going to knock down that shot anyway. But the, that's, that's the biggest thing I think I'm looking forward, looking for in those, you know, the first few months of the year is just how does the three point shot look compared to last year? What does it look like? Certainly from a, from a speed perspective. And then, you know, Obviously, the the weather goes in or out is obviously you know going to be super important. But just how does he how does he look shooting threes? What kind of respect does he draw from defenses in his first few months in the league? Because you know so much of the shooter's reputation has to do with like the perception of you rather than your actual numbers. Because like I think Bridges shot like thirty three percent from three last year, but has that reputation and like doesn't people don't just ignore him on the perimeter. So if he's if, if Bridges is a career 34% three-point shooter, I think he'd still have more gravity than a guy who shoots 36% but takes takes a bunch of time to get it off and doesn't shoot very many of them. So I think that's where that's where the, the what his shot looks like and the volume and how quickly he can get it off and all, just all of that is is going to be just as important as whether the shot actually goes in or out. Yeah, I uh, think that's a pretty good synopsis of his shooting. And, you know, Again, I, I was I was using the comp in a recent comp for Bridges because I think it's uh, as good as you could possibly get, honestly, for a reasonable rookie comp. But it isn't perfect. I, I just think that Hunter, you know, is he going to come out and score 50, 50 points a game? I, I don't think so. I think he's going to be a starter, but a low usage guy. He's clearly going to be at best the fourth option offense offensively, maybe even the, maybe even the fifth option in the starting lineup because clearly the three guys that you would think Young, Herder, and Collins are going to be of higher priority. And I, I think if I was guessing on a permanent basis, Alex Lynn will take more shots than DeAndre Hunter this year. I, I'm guessing. That's a guess. And it's only, I'm not a huge take of mine, but he's at, again, at best a fourth option offensively right now with the starters. And that's totally fine. Cause that's not really why they drafted him. There's some upside there as we talked about before, but he was drafted as a fit guy and we could litigate the, the logic of trading up for someone who is a role player and all that stuff. We've done it plenty of times before, but at the end of the day, at least part of the evaluation from the Hawks side, I know this for a fact was that he's such a perfect fit and he is, he's a perfect fit with the other guys on this core. He's the best defensive prospect that the, of the, of the guys that the Hawks have um, by a lot. Um, and given that they traded away their only small forward, their only young small forward in Torian Prince, who, we didn't love necessarily anyway, but they traded, they traded him away in early June. And that basically said, hi guys, whoever we draft is our, is our, is our start, is our, is our starting small forward. And then DeAndre Hunter is as NBA ready as you can get in this draft outside of Zion. So yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, they ended up with two with Hunter and Reddish. So yeah, like, I mean, and they kind of split the difference. I mean, Hunter's Hunter's the NBA ready guy, and Reddish is the more long term guy. And honestly, I don't think Reddish's upside is that much higher than Hunter's. I really don't. But I'm sure people disagree with me on that. But Hunter Hunter is not going to blow you away as a 20 point scorer in the NBA. I, I don't see that outcome as more than like a two percent outcome for him. But he just does so much well that I could see him just being perennially underrated by fans. Like, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Have... <laughs> it's kind of funny because top five picks, like he's right now at this moment, he's probably overrated because of where he got drafted um, by some people anyway. But three years from now, when he's averaging 11 points a game, but he's an awesome three and D player, he'll be underrated. <laughs> yeah. Like I can see if he turns out the way that, he could turn out like if he hits his 75th percentile ceiling outcome and he's a $25 million a year player in, you know, 2023, people are going to be like, I, people are not going to have any idea why he's making that much money. You know, when he scores 11 points a game, 12 points a game, but he's going to be, you know, plus 10 whenever he's on the floor. It's like, yeah, that's why, you know, it's, it's just, I can see where people are going to, underrate him throughout his career and we're going to have to come on this show probably and say like like he's really really important to what they do and i think he's that's why they drafted him that's why they love him that's why he wanted to come to atlanta like it, there's a whole bunch of, of of stuff there that makes me think that they sort of see him in that same way they love him and uh, with good reason I, I love him too i'm a big fan of yonry hunter um as a rookie I, I would pick him right now to be first team all rookie that doesn't really matter um, in the grand scheme of things, but I think he will be one of the five best rookies in the NBA this season because yeah, of he, he's just so he's just so NBA ready. Like, it doesn't mean he's going to average a ton of you know. The argument against that would be box score stats because most sure. of the time you need box score stats to make those teams. But in terms of just comparing where his defense is going to be, and again, I think just like Reddish to a certain extent, I think Hunter would be a little bit better. You know, Hunter, the fully formed version of Hunter defensively will not be here right away because rookies just needed some time. But even with that said, his individual defense will be good right away. I, I really believe that. His team defense probably has, has a little bit of uh, a place to go because he's changing systems in a more violent way than most because Virginia does not play an NBA system at all defensively. It's very, very college-based. Um, but individually, if you just say DeAndre, go, go, guard, go guard the best player on the other team on the wing, which is going to be his role every single night, by the way, like immediately – Opening night, DeAndre Hunter will have the best defensive assignment on the, on the, on the perimeter. Like, full stop. <laughs> so yeah, he should. It's going to be trial by fire in that way for him because, I mean, honestly, try to think of a player at the 1, 2, or 3 in the NBA that he won't be asked to guard. Like, he's going to be asked to guard the best player every night that's not a big. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I honestly, I mean, they're, even if it's a little point, even if it's a point that, guard... Like, I mean, the point guards. that's my biggest thing. They, like, might, they, gonna... they might let Trey guard point guards occasionally, particularly smaller point guards, like your Kemba Walker type kind of guy. But Hunter's a better option than Young and Herter right away. It's not ideal by any means because I don't think that Hunter defending point guards is going to be perfect down the line. But when you remember what the starting what the starting backcourt is, I'm kind of high on Herter's defense as a as a general rule. I think it's pretty solid, or at least it's going to be pretty solid. But he isn't going to be the guy who's guarding point guards. It's just not going to be that. So, like, if they're playing Portland, he's guarding they, game. I think, honestly, like immediately, like they they play him, they play them pretty early in the season. Oh, I mean, 
you, I, I know this sounds weird to me, but if Just I ask you, you if I ask you today, do you want Trey Young guarding Dame Lillard? But where do you put Trey Young? Like you're not putting him on anybody else. Like he'll he be, can't. You know, you know, you know who Trey, you know, you know who Trey Young's guarding in that scenario. Can't base Rodney. Oh yeah, probably. Um, I forgot it. Yeah, I shouldn't have forgotten about that. But no, I, it's okay. I mean, it's but you know that that's an extreme example. Like pick another. I mean, it sounds funny, and I you, even as I say it, it sounds yeah, funny to me. But unless you really want Trey to go out and guard Dame Lillard or whoever, that, I wonder if the Hawks will have the sort of Steph Curry Golden State thing where they're like, you're the point guard, guard the other point guard. I mean, and they I might honestly that that would not be a bad idea, especially for this season only. Yeah. I, I would be fully on board with that approach. It might be hard to watch at times, yeah. but a trial by fire like that for Trey, now that Trey has been through the gauntlet, and we'll obviously talk about him more at point guards, but now that he's been there through the gauntlet of a season where he was the offensive engine, he kind of knows what, he, what he's going to have to be dealing with offensively, they're going to turn the heat up on him defensively. There's 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 already rumblings of that. Pierce has kind of alluded to it a few times, both you know behind the scenes, all that fun stuff. They're going to try to keep him more accountable this year. I'm very confident in that defensively. Whether that works or not, we'll see. But I would be okay with that. I'd be okay with just saying, all right, Trey, we're not helping you. Yeah, you're the point guard. Guard, your, guard your, your opposite. But anyway, all that is, it was more supposed to be like a in a um, an endorsement of Hunter were, because Hunter is going to be the guy defensively. If they were to start a playoff series in on October 20th, Lord. Hunter would be the, the Dame Lillard. Defender, like if they were to play a, a playoff series against Sacramento, like he guard De'Aaron Fox, like they just have to. I mean, that's a really hard matchup for that's a tough matchup him he's so, because he's so, so fast. But yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe. I definitely think if it's if it's a bigger guard, like okay, say it's say it's Houston, he's guarding James Harden, like n- full stop, hundred yeah, percent. So or you know or Kawhi or whoever you want to say i mean obviously Kawhi is more obvious cuz he's a, he's a small forward but yeah. you know like short of the- short of small point guards i think hunter is guarding the best perimeter player every night they play the nets is he going to guard kyrie or is it going to be trey young i kind of depends on what you if you were trying to win a game today it's probably him but if it's yeah, but you know and honestly so i, I, I can try to win a game immediately like i would imagine right. like DeAndre I, I can, I can already be. i can already hear the uh the cries about about Bembry, who would be the other option here, and, yeah. and we'll talk about Bembry on the, on the shooting guard podcast. I know that Bembry is a, is a sort of a hybrid two three, but we're saving him for the, for the shooting guards, not because he's just a pure shooting guard, but he's the other guy on this team right now that you would want Actually, guarding someone like that. But he's just he's not going to start. So, um, yeah. So you know, and obviously he's done a great job on guys in the that's that's his one calling card right now in the NBA is for Bembry is being able to guard guards like defend yeah. guards. So we'll get to him, I promise. But uh, all that to say, it was it was really more about endorsement of Hunter as yeah. the immediate best defender in the starting lineup because he is. I think I think as crazy as this is for me to say out loud about a rookie in the NBA, he's the best defender in the starting lineup. Yeah, without like even blinking an eye, like he's clearly the best. Col- Collins the best. Collins is the only guy. Collins is the only guy in the starting lineup that I think has a chance to be better than him this year, and that that yeah, that, that takes Collins, that that, that, that takes quite a leap from Collins, but uh, he at least has the physical talent. To, to do it if it all comes together and we talked about that a lot on the last podcast but aside from that 10% scenario where Collins puts it all together right away Hunter even as a rookie man is going to be yeah, he really heavily in, relied on <laughs> they're going to need him in a big yeah. way this, I mean this we've I think we've talked about it either on the show or off the show like is this over under like the 28th best defense for this team like they're going to be so bad I, I still think uh 
there are at least one or two teams that are going to be worse full stop. It's the only team that I think is Cleveland? absolutely Yeah, I mean, there'll be somebody worse other than Cleveland, but yeah, Cleveland's a lock. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, there's not like, it's not like they're in the same tier. They're in that same, like sort of second from the bottom tier, like Cleveland's in its own tier. They, if they're not 30th, that's a massive upset. I think Washington's going to be terrible defensively. Washington might. Yeah. Washington's is, is one of those, those other teams. They're going to be, they're going to be terrible defensively. Like Thomas, Thomas Bryant is really bad defensively. Um, and, we, I listened to uh, this is a obviously a digression, but I listened to the uh, Wizards preview with uh, Fred Katz, Mike Prada, and, and Nate Duncan on, on on Nate's podcast. And uh, when they were going through defense, I was like having weird visions. Like like they're like they're like by the way, who's the best defender on this team? And uh, Fred was like, well, uh, full game or last two minutes. <laughs> and he was like, if it's last two minutes, it's Bradley Beal. Full game. Uh, he was like Troy Brown, maybe. I was oh, like, oh Jesus. man. It's gonna that's, be bad. So yeah, all I have to say, like Cleveland's worst. I'm I'm with you. Yeah. I think I'd probably pick Washington to be worse than Washington. Miles. Might be 29th. So yeah. So but, but the the overarching point, of It'll course, is like yeah. also going to be 26, 27, 28, 29, somewhere in through there, and it's going to be really, really bad. And that's why. I mean, that's part of why Hunter is probably the best defender on the on the starting lineup is because they don't have a lot of talent outside of him. So you know, we'll see where he can come in. We'll see how much of his defense really translates, but. Uh, it's it's gonna be an uphill battle for them defensively this year. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, any any uh, final thoughts? I think my last overarching thought on the small forward spot is uh, Hunter is going to be the guy that plays by far the most minutes unless he gets injured. That's the way it should be. And then behind him, um, Reddish is the highest priority uh, in terms of minutes. And if he's just again, if he's just any way playable, they're going to play him, and they should. Um, and then we'll see what happens after that. I think honestly. I would probably pick DeAndre Bembry to finish third in minutes at small forward. Yeah, probably. Even though we're not talking about on, on this podcast, I think if I had to yeah. pick one guy, it would be Bembry. Um, only be no, not only in part because if you get an injury to Hunter or or Reddish, but especially Hunter, those minutes almost have to go to Bembry. Like a lot of those moments, because of just the, of, the, of the defense, they just don't have anybody else to play defense. So they don't. We'll talk about that later with Bembry, but uh, yeah, that's my that's my overarching thing. Hunter, I have high hopes for right away, within reason, because he's NBA ready. Reddish will take a while. Parsons, uh, to be determined, and Charlie Brown maybe later. That's my yeah, short. Well, that's my short synopsis, Jeff. Yeah, we'll see about Charlie Brown. But yes, I'm, <laughs> I like um, Charlie Brown. I still do. I think that's uh, that's pretty much where I'm where I am as well. To bring things full circle, I like Charlie Brown. I like Cam Reddish. I like DeAndre Hunter. Jemma Parsons is Jemma Parsons. And uh, yeah, small forwards. That'll do that. Yep. Um, That'll again, it. if you missed it, we, we talked about power forwards for two full episodes. A lot of Jabari Parker, a lot of John Collins. And then uh, center before that with uh, Bruno Fernando and Damian Jones and, of course, Alex Lynn. And uh, we'll have two more coming. Uh, shooting guards going to be Kevin Herter, Alan Crabb, DeAndre Bembry, and uh, I guess Taj McCall now that we just – have to talk about him a little bit more and then point guard will be at the end with uh trey young evan turner and brandon goodwin so stay tuned jeff 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 will be here at some point for those in the next couple of weeks because as you're listening to this probably on monday we're one week from media day jeff we're almost there i'm just ecstatic you sound ecstatic i really appreciate I, your. i could your use dedication. another couple of weeks but that's, I, know, it's, I don't, I don't have on that the time. bright side though there won't be any games the hawks don't play a game for two weeks still 
So yeah, and the preseason, and pre-season means nothing. So really, we're, as we record this, the season tips off in a month. Well, I will I will be I'm at State Farm Arena two. Uh, if you're listening to this on Monday, two weeks from today, I will be at State Farm Arena for a basketball game. Yeah, I've actually I was looking at it. I think this is the first time I'm going to not be in Atlanta for the like home opener since like 2012 or something. I don't think I'm coming this year. So and you, and you don't that, live here, so that that's a pretty that's pretty impressive. Yeah, actually, I fly back the, the beginning and end of the season, um, and this is I'm not going to be there this year. We can we can negotiate on, off the podcast of how much I'm going to bribe you to go to LA for the for the back. Oh, I'm definitely going to LA. Well, good. Um, uh, if I can, yes, yeah, it's one of those things. I, I have some correspondence around the uh, around the country. You're the chief uh, California correspondent. I got I got to try to bribe Robbie, bribe Robbie into going to Phoenix. Um, I got some. We, we got some guys all over the place now. Maybe I can get Graham to fly to like New York or something for maybe closer to New York than me. I don't know. Anyway, well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate Thanks you joining me. me. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get back to it. Hey, plug plug your stuff, man. Line, line, line up tools. You got stuff that you were you were uh, all over the nene thing, all the twists and turns at early bird rights. All, all all kinds of things going on in your life. Sure, yeah. You can uh, you can follow me on Twitter at jg siegel or at early bird rights. Earlybirdrights.com is my home for everything non hawks now. As uh, I've been pulling back from some of my other freelance stuff, so. That's uh, going to be a big part of, of the season going forward. We're going to have we have already up there a rotation tool where you can go in and sort of play with lineups and various rotations for you know whatever team that you're you're interested in. Um, we're going to have something else coming very shortly in the next month, literally in the next month, because it's got to come out before the season starts. So that's going to be really cool as well. Uh, all of my non-hawks writing is going to be there this season. So uh, that's where you can find my thoughts on that. You can find my thoughts on the Nene thing. If you don't know what the Nene thing is, then you can find all of that over there as well. It was uh, pretty interesting for people like me who are big, big nerds on the uh, salary cap stuff. So if you're interested in salary cap stuff, if you're interested in X's and O's once the season starts, uh, stats, playbook, whatever, like all of that stuff is going to be over at Early Bird Rights. Check out Early Bird Rights, uh, please, and uh, patronize that. I'm there all the time. Even without my friendship with Jeff, I would use that site quite a bit. Um, so check that out. And uh, as you just heard, Jeff will be still at peacetreehoops.com at least, as I uh, twisted his arm hard enough for him to stick around. And uh, people love your people love your Hawks takes, Jeff. Oh, they are just ecstatic over there. <laughs> all right, we'll end on that note. Uh, as for everybody else, please subscribe to this podcast via the platform of your choice, and we'll see you later on this week.